Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure. Take the adventure with us. With us. With us. With us. And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Parallax Channel. My name is Sean Marlon Newcomb, and today we are continuing our series on classical studies. We call it Classical Studies 101, and our introduction to the Iliad, and we'll be covering Chapter 2 onward. And, of course, guiding us on this journey is the one, the only, Dr. Gary Stickle. Hey, Gary. Hi. Your, your adoring fans, how are you? Uh, I I hope so, and great to be back with you again. Okay, so when last we left off, we had covered, uh, in our first episode, we covered just an introduction to Homer, the background of the Iliad, the background of the world, the historical background of the world at that time, and then we talked about chapter one, we talked about the gods and goddesses and the main heroes, so, Gary, if you could, please just give us a quick summary of what happened in Chapter 1 of the Iliad, and then we'll jump right into Chapter 2. Okay, I'll, I'll do that by um, reading the uh, beginning of Chapter 1, um, which is uh, the first um, seven lines are called the Proem. It's, it's like a, a little summary of, of each chapter. Right. At the beginning of each chapter, um, and <clears throat> this is the beginning of Homer's great epic, the Iliad. I keep saying it, uh, the greatest story of war ever written, mm-hmm. and the earliest one, the earliest book-length work uh, in Western European civilization. There's nothing earlier, and yet it's so fantastic. Mm-hmm. And what I'm reading you is a translation by Robert Fagels, <clears throat> who. Uh, Published it at Princeton, by the way, your alma mater. All right, let's get a little applause for that. And uh, so he he labels the first chapter the Rage of Achilles. It's really um, what dominates most of the Iliad. And here's the proem. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about um, he translates as God as most translators uh, translate as Muse. Mm-hmm. Probably muse of history, Cleo. <clears throat> he says, "Rage, goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles. Murderous doom that cost the Achaeans countless losses, hurling down to the house of death so many sturdy souls, great fighters' souls, but made their bodies carry on feats for the dogs and birds, and the well of Zeus was moving towards his end. Begin, muse." With the two, when the two first broke and clashed, Agamemnon, lord of men, and brain Achilles. So the first chapter is about the falling out between Achilles, considered the greatest warrior of the Greeks and the greatest warrior in the Iliad, uh, and Agamemnon, who was the high king of Greece. He, he wasn't uh, overall king. There are, there are many kings 
but he was a high king. You know, I, I make an analogy with um, King Arthur. He was a, there's mm -hmm. other kings in England, uh, according to the legend of King Arthur, but he was a high king, the most dominant, mm -hmm. most uh, prestigious uh, king. And uh, so Agamemnon leads the uh, Achaeans, which is Homer's term for the Greeks, against the Trojans. And uh, <clears throat> but he has a falling out with Achilles because uh, he takes away Achilles' uh, a war prize, a love slave, Briseis, and Achilles gets really upset with that and he refuses to fight. So let's let's uh, to make that just clarify that to the listener. So Achilles has captured uh, a woman and taken yeah. her as uh, as his slave, as his love slave, his war prize, and right. and and Agamemnon has taken that war prize from him. Yes. Okay. To make up for one, he had to release in order to get the god Apollo <clears throat> to be appeased, mm -hmm. because uh, he took the daughter of a priest of Apollo, and then the priest called on <clears throat> Apollo to wreak havoc on the Greeks, which he did with a plague that lasted nine days. In order to stop it, uh, he had to give up his love slave, who's called Chryseis, by the way, <clears throat> and the daughter of Chryseis, the priest. Um, and this and, is a patriarchal world for the listeners. This is a, yes. this is a very <clears throat> domineering, male-centric, uh, in which women in terms of their personhood were not treated as equals, not treated in the same way. Although interestingly, you have a great amount of reverence for the goddesses. I've always found that interesting about the Greeks. They are incredibly, at times, incredibly deeply misogynistic, yet have such amazing goddesses in their pantheon. Well, and the primary one is Athena, who's a warrior goddess, usually depicted and wearing a helmet and armor and carrying a shield and spear. Uh, and so she's the, um, uh, use the verbiage of today, a kick-ass goddess. Mm -hmm. um, and Homer says that she can even defeat one-on-one -on -one, uh, against Ares, the god of war. So if they have a fight between them, uh, she would win against them. Wow, that is, uh, that's quite a statement from Homer. Yeah, I, I think so. And it shows that they did have respect for women, but not, not as much as they should, of course. Right. So we start with chapter one. So we have uh, this conflict with Achilles and Agamemnon uh, at the gates of Troy. Yes. Okay. So where are we now in chapter two? What? Let's you know, well, start us two, with the listener. Um, just to give a little synopsis and then I'll um, <clears throat> you know, continue with it. Um, it's... Um, uh, th now, this synopsis was published <clears throat> by Harvard and uh, by three translators, Andrew Lang, Walter Leaf, and Ernest Myers in 1883. It's beautifully translated, um, but uh, unlike Robert Fagel's, it's a little more modern translation. But anyhow, their summary of book two is how Zeus, you know, he's the king of the gods, beguiled Agamemnon with a dream. It's called the false dream. Mm -hmm. And of the assembly of the Achaeans and their marching forth to battle, and of the names and numbers of the hosts of the Achaeans and the Trojans. So what it means is they list the uh, 
the, the kings and the allies of the uh, Greeks, essentially, and then it goes on to list the, uh, the Trojans and their allies. They mm-hmm. had allies. So this is, you know, like uh, <clears throat> World War II, uh, where we had, America had allies of Britain and Canada and so on. And uh, the Greeks had that, and so did the Trojans. And so that's what chapter two gives us the breakdown on? Yes. Oh, that It's really interesting because it's over, sort of like you get this set up and then the here's this little squabbling going on uh, among the forces for the Greeks. And then now as a, as a narrator, as a writer, as an author, Homer then sets up the conflict. He says, okay, here's on one side in this corner, like in a boxing match, in this corner, so-and-so, and in this yes. corner... Here are the Trojans with their allies. And I believe we're not the Amazons, their allies on the Trojan side. Yes, I'll get to that. Um, Okay. Now the proem or the opening of uh, book two, and this is a translation by Robert Fagels. Mm -hmm. He calls the chapter the great gathering of armies. And he says, now the great array of gods and chariot driving men slept all night long but the peaceful grip of sleep could not hold Zeus, the king of the gods, you know, turning it over in his mind how to exalt Achilles and how to slaughter the hordes of Achaeans pinned against their ships. In other words, he, he wanted to exalt Achilles, but he also wanted to punish the Achaeans. Mm-hmm. As his spirit churned, at last one plan seemed best. He would send dream it's a god called morpheus mm-hmm. uh murderous dream to agamemnon calling out a vision and zeus winged morpheus on and then he says go murderous dream to the fast Achaean ships and once you have reached agamemnon's shelter rouse him order him word for word exactly as i command tell atreides to arm his long-haired Achaeans to attack at once full force so that now he can take the broad streets of Troy. So he's promising uh, Agamemnon in this false dream that he will take Troy, but that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so do we know at this point why Zeus has this desire to have Achilles exalted, but the Greeks punished? Well, it, it's just that he's... Um, Easily offended all the time, you know. So oh, okay. So he switches his um, allegiance back and forth, you know. It's it's a really it's a great conceit, you know, on Homer's part and on and the that, Greeks. And, and that's that's why you know Zeus drags on the war for uh, ten years, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, another translation. He says, "My meaning, you know, Zeus." will to plunder uh he called he translates as ilium and ilium is really the roman name for troy mm-hmm. the greek name is ilion i-l-i-o-n in english mm-hmm. and that's why it's called the iliad it means poem of ilion or ilios actually right. it's ilios uh ilion's a later greek uh translation but the original one is ilios and uh so the Iliad is the poem of Ilios. Right. 
And he says, storing my will to plunder Ilium's rugged walls, and now nine years of almighty Zeus have marched by. So there are nine years. So we we begin this epic. And, and, and actually nine the years. Tenth, it's actually the 10th year. The 10th, right. So nine years have elapsed, and now we're in the 10th. Right. Okay. Which I think on the last episode, you talked about what that concept was called, uh, if you want to repeat it for the listener, about starting that story in the middle, so to speak, or starting it not at the beginning. Yeah, that's that's called uh, in literature, in medias res, in the middle of the story. So in other words, he starts it out, actually it's not in the middle of the story, it's almost like at the end at of the, the end, story. At the end, right, exactly. Uh, but he makes references to the beginning and the middle um, throughout the Iliad. It's a brilliant setup, isn't it? It's a really beautiful structure. Well, it really shows that by the time Homer wrote this down, or had somebody write it down, that the structure was very sophisticated. Exactly. Like I've heard other uh, scholars refer to this, they say usually when you have the first of something, like the first epic, it's relatively simple, you know, with the beginning, middle, and end structure. Mm -hmm. Uh, linear, we call it. But Homer has a non-linear structure, so it's already very sophisticated. And that's just one of the many aspects of the story that uh, he has. And, and uh, uh, has, among the reasons that you think that this work is so important and so vital to be to continue to be taught, right? Oh, absolutely. There's this movement against uh, teaching the Iliad, the Odyssey, and classics. I think it's insane because these works have inspired people for 3,000 years. They continue to do so. Uh, well, both, we, we uh, get so much of our concepts of how to tell a story from these great works. So it's kind of, I agree, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, absolutely. To, Every time you see a movie that's nonlinear, it, it's derived from Homer. Right. And uh, we have whole cities named after Homeric subjects like Ithaca, New York, Ith Ithaca University, Homer, Alaska. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Homer has been incredibly uh, influential and people don't realize it. That's why I created a Homeric project to try to uh, let people know how influential Homer has been and that he deserves a lot more recognition than he's being given. And then now this effort to even not teach the, about the Iliad Odyssey at all is, is horrible. It's oh, terrible. It's, it's, it's mad. Well, okay, so let's let's hear about the who are the forces now that are arrayed? What who's on each side? Okay, uh, well, th that's why chapter two is it's called the catalog of ships, mm -hmm. because embedded in it, um, particularly beginning in lines five seventy three, uh, in other words, um, when Aristarchus and the other scholars at the great Library of Alexandria. You know, the city was created by Alexander the Great, and then the Greeks created Alexandria into the, the intellectual capital of the world, really, at the time. <clears throat> so they actually divided up the Iliad and Odyssey into 24 books, they called it, or each book actually referred to a scroll, I think. For them, a book was a scroll. Mm -hmm. So it's 24 scrolls to cover. Uh, all the Iliad, and, and they, for some reason, even though it's only 12,000 lines instead of uh, you know, upwards of 16,000 lines for the Iliad, um, they uh, created 24 books for the Odyssey as well. 
and then within each book they numbered each line so that's why when i say you know book two line 573 you can go to that in any edition that has that uh printed up like that right so he has um you know the ostensibly homer would be saying sing to me now you muses that hold the halls of olympus you are goddesses you are everywhere you know all things all we hear is the distant ring of glory we know nothing who were the captains of the Achaea? who were the kings the mass of troops i could never tally never name not even if i had ten tongues and ten mouths those are sacred numbers ten and ten Mm -hmm. uh, because you know the the Iliad takes ten years, you know the, the Trojan War takes ten years, right? And the Odyssey takes ten years for Odysseus to get home, ten and ten. So that's an incredible journey that Odysseus has to take, and a long time to be away from home. Uh, absolutely. So not even if I had ten tongues and ten mouths, a tireless voice and heart and heart inside me bronze. Nevertheless, you muses of Olympus, daughters of Zeus, whose shield is rolling thunder, sing, sing in memory, all who gathered under Troy. Now I can only tell the lords of the ships, the ships in all their numbers. So I'm not going to read all of them, but the first came to Boeotian units led by Latus and Penelios. Can you tell us who each of those units are? So when you say the Boeotian units, who are they? Well, it's, a, it's an area of Greece called Boeotia. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they met at what he calls Rocky Olus. Now, Olus is along the coast of Greece, and this is where all the uh, ships from the different kings met. So okay. anyhow, um, so he talks about, uh, you know, how, how many um, ships each, each one uh, brought. And when they did, you know, then they had certain numbers of men in what they call the uh, long curved ships, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Boeotians. So we have had, that. We have that group. Okay. The Boeotians had thirty of the ships. And next came the Locrians, led by Ajax, the great Ajax, who was the second greatest warrior of the Greeks. You know, Achilles and, is the best. Ajax was second. And the protagonist of an amazing, amazing uh, classical play. Uh, absolutely and uh so uh, that by the way that play is that play fast i i have a translation of that play that i think is incredible it's almost hallucinogenic and, it, and it's it's like an early portrayal of ptsd we're talking about ajax the play ajax yes. uh because absolutely. he just has gone mad you know after yes to the war but anyway sorry so go on so we've got so no, ajax not, is with, uh, what's ajax is with which um with, with the locrians the locrians um, and where where in greece were they what part of uh, greece? It, it's um it's in the, the greater area of uh, southern greece you know mm -hmm. athens and so on okay yeah and um so anyhow um he also brought uh they call him Little Ajax. He was another Ajax, but he was not a, uh, a he wasn't a huge guy like Ajax. He was a, a little Ajax, yeah, supposed to a, Ajax. a big one. Yeah. There, there you go. Yeah. Um, and um, so anyhow, they had 40 
the long black ships. Homer keeps calling them black ships. Mm-hmm. 40 black ships. And then, well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm guessing, is there some reason where ships normally not colored that way? Or is there just he just... I don't know. Homer keeps referring to them as black ships. So I guess they painted them black for some reason. You know? Mm-hmm. And um, they, uh, Locrians lived across... Uh, there's a strait between uh, Evia, this big island, and the mainland of Greece, north of Athens. And the Locrians lived across the strait, you know, from uh, Evia. Okay. And uh, then the next were the uh, next were the men who held Evia, and so on. So it, it just goes on and on talking about right. how many. They also had forty ships. Next came the men who built. Athens. They're talking about uh, lion-hearted, uh, the realm of uh, high-hearted. They call him high-hearted uh, Erechtheus. Zeus's daughter Athena tended him and so on. Mm-hmm. They brought 50 ships. And then out of uh, uh, Salamis, uh, and now he's kind of repeating it, Telamonian and Ajax led 12 ships. So it keeps going on. Right. So it goes on for, for all the all the side for the Greeks. And, and then or, and, and next, next uh, I'm, I'm going down here, but anyhow, um, he talks about Mycenae. Now, Mycenae was ruled by Agamemnon, the high king that led all the all these all these kings. Ajax was a mm-hmm. king and so on uh, against the Trojans. He said, next came the men who held Mycenae's huge walled citadel, which I've been to, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, also Corinth and strong Cleone. Uh, so anyhow, he talks about Agamemnon. They came in a hundred ships and Agamemnon led them on. Mm-hmm. And they call Agamemnon the greatest warlord. He led by far the largest army. So he had a hundred ships, you said? A hundred ships. I estimate each ship, based on these uh, the warship's mural from the Bronze Age mural on the island of Thera, uh, that uh, each ship might have carried about a hundred men. Mm-hmm. So because, yeah, that's quite a force. Yeah, because each each uh, ship in the so-called uh, warship's mural shows about uh, thirty. Uh, paddlers. They weren't rowers. They weren't rowing the ships. They were paddling them. Mm-hmm. Uh, like giant uh, paddle boats. Uh, we have them today because the Royal Barge, uh, you know, in uh, Sri Lanka uh, has a hundred men on it and they, and they paddle it. They don't row it. Mm-hmm. So it's a modern day equivalent. And uh, so uh, Agamemnon led a hundred ships, and uh, and then it goes on. Uh, next came the men of Pylos or Pylos. That's where old King Nestor ruled. And um, and uh, it talks about um, uh, he Nestor, the noble, the noble old horseman, led those troops in ninety sweeping ships. So almost a hundred. Mm-hmm. So he was almost as powerful as Agamemnon, but uh, not not quite, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And it says they, they sailed across the wine dark sea, a phrase I love and everything, you know. Um, and and then it mentions <clears throat> Odysseus, and I'm really uh, always interested in this. Next, Odysseus led his Cephalonian uh, companies. So in other words, uh, Homer refers to all the, the people that um, Odysseus um, ruled as Cephalonia. Today, uh, and that's the name of the major island where I think Odysseus, uh, true island of Ithaca is uh, connected to by an isthmus. Just uh, for to, for the listener to know again, just to remind them if they're coming in at a different point, tell them a little bit about what you are, what you've just mentioned. What are you trying to do with respect to where you think Odysseus um, is really from and how you can prove it? Well, uh, let me just finish uh, this passage about Odysseus, and I'll get to that. Sure. <clears throat> um, so he translates: Next, Odysseus led his Cephalonian companies, gallant-hearted fighters. The island men of Ithaca. Now that's uh, Odysseus' home island, Ithaca. Uh, Mount Neritons, leafy ridges shimmering in the wind. The men who lived in Crocleia and rugged Egalypse. These are different settlements. And men who held Zakynthos, which is another island. And the men who dwelled near Samos. Uh, Samos is another island. And and apparently he ruled over part of the mainland of Greece because in mainland men who grazed their flocks across the channel. That mastermind like Zeus, Odysseus led those fighters on in his command and sailing in 12 ships, prows flashing crimson. So his, his ships may have been painted black, but it's the prow or the front of the ship was painted red. Mm-hmm. So in other words, 12 is the minimum number of ships any given king has, which I mm-hmm. use the sacred symbolic number of 12. And 100 is the most, and that's Agamemnon. Right. So now what I'm trying to do is um, I've been searching for the lost palace of Odysseus, uh, which has never been found, um, even though Schliemann, back in 1870, he went to what is now Turkey and he found the city of Troy. And at the time he went there, the prevailing academic uh, opinion was that so all these stories of Homer, the Iliad Odyssey, were completely fictional, had no basis in reality. But Schliemann didn't believe that. He was a <clears throat> he was a great admirer of Homer, like I am. And uh, so he went there, and he he made a lot of money actually in California to finance his dig, as it were, in uh, Turkey. <clears throat> went there and dug at a hill called Hisarlik and found Troy. And today, no archaeologist doubts that the site he found was is indeed Troy. It's the city of Troy. And you're going words, to look to see if you can find a similar sort of make it take a similar journey in terms of finding Odysseus's uh, palace. Yeah, because the <clears throat> the palace of Odysseus is for the Odyssey what the city of Troy is for the Iliad. The main the main place in which most of the action takes place. Okay. Now, Gary, we're up, up, up against the end of our time. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. So, no, no worries. But now, have we covered all the all the forces along the Achaean sides, along the Greek sides? Uh, not, no, there's more, a lot more, but that's okay. I mean, it's okay. Just, all right. Why don't, why don't we stop there? I mean, I, I, like... I, gave, I gave you the highlights, and then next time, if you want, we can talk about the Trojans. Well, that's what we'll do. We'll pick it up with the Trojans next time. Uh, because I have a particular interest in some of their allies. So um, I, I think absolutely. Be like, fun. 
<clears throat> like the Amazons, for Indeed, example. Indeed, like the Amazons. We yeah. have to... There we go, giving them their applause. Well, everyone, thank you. We have come to the end of this week's lecture. This is uh, Classical Studies 101 being led by Dr. Gary Stickle, Homeric scholar and archaeologist, often called the real-life Indiana Jones. Uh, Gary, thank you for uh, joining us and for no, guiding no, thank us. thank you. Today. It's a joy to talk about Homer's great epic with you. And uh, thank you all for listening. I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb. This is the 34 Circe Salon, The Parallax. We've been doing our Classical Studies 101. We will be back again soon. Take care. Thank you.